the fashion industry has this perception that it's very progressive and very liberal based on aesthetics alone. But when you look at it from a functioning standpoint, it's one of the most conservative and stagnant industries on the, on the planet. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saber. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. My name is Jerry Siver and this is the podcast for you if you're looking for inspiration and ideas on how to get started or if you want to learn more about the skills to run a successful plant-based business. And of course, if you're plant curious or vegan, this is where you can hear the stories behind your favorite brands, find out about new ones and stay up to date with what's happening across the entire plant-based industry. Because every week I sit down with people that are looking for better solutions to how we feed ourselves, create new materials, get around, think about the world, and yes, also dress ourselves. Because my guest today knows a lot about that last part. His name is Joshua Catcher, and you probably know him as the founder and designer of Brave Gentleman brand of fine vegan menswear. And he's also a professor of fashion at Parsons School of Design in New York. So this episode today is going to be all about vegan fashion, how it's evolving, where it's headed, and how to build a successful brand around it. Joshua, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to discuss some of the uh, latest innovations and some of the reasons why the necessary future of the fashion industry is vegan. Yeah, I'm also very interested to to hear your views on that. But before we get into that, can we just build a bit of a foundation around you as as a person? Like, I'd like to know what what shaped you, what moved you into this direction. So when yeah. when did you become vegan? When did you get interested in fashion and, and get started with all this? I. It's funny because I never really imagined myself being in the fashion industry um, as a as a kid, as a teenager. You know, I always um, had a fondness for uh, maybe some countercultural aesthetics. I was I was involved in in the punk rock scene and the hardcore music scene, and fashion definitely played a role in uh, identifying these subcultures. And I think I was aware of that. I knew that fashion was something important and in, in how it could articulate identity. Um, but I didn't really think about fashion with a capital F, um, the fashion industry, uh, as something um, that I was even uh, interested in. I thought it was kind of frivolous and silly and uh, it was just a way for uh, people to communicate status and access to expensive things. and um, it had, it had something very, uh, frivolous and trivial around it. And I, I was very aware of that. And, and I think I was, uh, I was tapping into a few of my major criticisms of the fashion industry at the time that I can articulate better now, but, um, no, I, I, I studied, uh, filmmaking and I studied environmental studies. Um, I went to school for video art. And I, I really wanted, to, and I worked in television for many years, but it wasn't until I started writing The Discerning Brute, which was the blog that I started in 2008. And this was the first men's lifestyle vegan blog, um, at least that I'm aware of, that really gained uh, popularity on, on that level, where it, it, was, it was reaching out to both um, men who were interested in fashion and lifestyle and food and culture uh, in the same way a magazine like GQ might reach out to men in that way. Um, but the spin was that it was for men who were looking for more ethical and sustainable choices and packaging it in a way that didn't threaten their uh, notions of masculinity, which is a topic that I talk a lot about on the blog. That's always uh, a, um, a challenge, yeah. Just ha yeah. how to get that across. Yeah, it's really... Uh, uh, masculinity is such a, or mainstream masculinity is such an interesting thing, such a limited and limiting thing. Um, so trying to manipulate that and, and play with it and try to get, try to win over men who are maybe a little 
uh, insecure about the idea of identifying as compassionate or empathetic or a nurturer. These are things that we often assign to feminine qualities in our culture, which is very problematic, where we have the separation, where men feel that they have to be brutal in order to be considered masculine. And uh, But there are, <laughs> there are ways to talk about it that appeals to those people. So I really tried to frame it as uh, about being about being a hero or a defender or a protector. Um, and it, you know, the experiment went well, <laughs> but I, I had already gone vegan by the time that I started the blog. I actually went vegan, uh, in the nineties in the, in the 1990s. And, um, it was because it just, it just made sense. It made perfect sense to me when I came across it. And at the time I, I was in high school, uh, late high school, and I had just found out about um, where where cattle were grazing. It had never occurred to me until that point to question where my food was coming from. And I think that that was a moment in my life where I also started challenging and questioning what the adults were doing. And this idea that, hey, the adults are not always right, and maybe that they, maybe they, there are some really messed up things that um, that we're all participating in and that are passed off as normal and business as usual. And I think the food system was one of the most obvious and, and the first thing that, that I was, became aware of. Um, I was in an after-school club, an environmental club, and we were learning about the rainforest and why it was being destroyed. And it turned out that cattle grazing was one of the top reasons. And it just, it, it kind of blew my mind that you know, here I am sitting in New York learning about the fact that the hamburger that I had in my school cafeteria came from South America in the rainforest. And that just seems so ludicrous to me. Why would that, why is this international system of food production happening and what does it mean? And the moment we started looking into it, it just, it became obvious that it was not something that I wanted to partake in. And that kind of was the first domino that fell that <laughs> knocked over the rest. And uh, I, I became very interested in other food issues. And my high school library had a copy of Peter Singer's Animal Liberation in it, luckily, and I was looking for information and I happened to come across it. Um, so I took that book out and I read it and I was just uh, I was riveted and I was um, horrified and infuriated and it it really set a different tone. Um, but I, I think I was also prepared to try to make change. I, I grew up reading comic books. I was a really big comic book fan and I, I loved the idea of superheroes and, and fighting for justice and doing what's right in the face of uh, in the in the face of challenges, and um, so this kind of was an exciting endeavor, also because it appealed to that side of me that wanted to do wanted to do good in the world, and um, uh, and yeah. Was that kind of in parallel with you getting into hardcore punk rock music scene, or did that happen after you you'd gone vegan? Um, it kind of happened around the same time. I remember being at a at one of the shows, and I I always kind of I always identified a little bit as an outcast. I was very into art. Um, I think a lot of my fellow students were uh, aware that I was maybe a little bit different. Especially, I think some of them kind of knew that I was gay, but they didn't. At the time, I wasn't out, so there were there were definitely elements of of feeling like an outcast and not really being able to find a home at, outside of going to the punk show or going to the hardcore show, and uh, and you know music became a really big uh, solution for that. So I remember being at a hardcore show and seeing a table that PETA had set up with pamphlets. And I took some of the pamphlets home, and those also played a really large role. And, and I think the idea of being vegan or being vegetarian or standing up for animal rights or social justice in general 
was something that was very welcomed and encouraged in those music scenes, at least at least the shows that I went to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can kind of relate to that, although my forays into punk rock were more of a just reveling against everything with <laughs> no particular goal in mind, just wanted to wanted to be a rebel. And I got yeah. into veganism way, way after that. But yeah, <laughs> I and maybe, maybe it was just just the right timing or formula for me. So I don't know. I guess every music scene is different. Yeah. So that's kind of led you into into activism. And that kind of led you to to fashion from a totally different aspect. Like it's you very said. weird how it, how it happened. Yeah. When I when I went off to college, um, I I started an animal rights organization at Syracuse University where I went to school and I was also involved in the environmental group and the social justice group. And, we, you know, we did everything from addressing sweatshops, which started getting me really interested in fashion um, to fighting for um, environmental justice in the local community and organizing with our uh, organizing with the university to provide more vegan options to students and um, there was a lot of activism going on in, in the late 90s um, and so I, I got interested in fashion later when I started writing the blog because I realized that I wanted to reach a lot of people with ideas. And when I started really looking into how people change and how people identify, fashion kept coming up. That fashion was something that both was overlooked as something frivolous and silly, but at the same time, it has these huge global impacts and these really significant psychological and sociological implications. So it kind of flies in under the radar, which makes it even more potentially dangerous or potentially um, influential and positive. And it's really something that everyone who wears clothing participates in. Whether or not you think you are participating in fashion system, if you get dressed each day, you're participating. And and it's it's the way that we present ourselves, the way that we want others to perceive us, our first impression uh, for, for many of us. And if if people can identify and build their identity around marketed campaigns from major fashion brands, then what's to say that they can't also build identity around brands that actually are transparent and stand for what the, what the materials are and how they're made and 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 those implications. So that's that's where the the brainchild for Brave Gentleman came from was the idea that people identify people take on fashion as an extension of their own identity and Brave Gentleman taking that on as part of your identity means taking on how the products are made what they're made from and why they're being made if that if that's part of our marketed message yeah and i'm really glad that you brought up the whole perception of fashion or how what the function is because it just kind of plays along with with the topic of food and the topic of vegan food because similar to to food being ever present in our lives just like you said you get up you get dressed and, and then you eat. So the clothes you wear and, and the food you eat are actually a lot more connected than um, than I would say most people realize in terms of how they shape our perceptions of, of ourselves. So yes. how, how do you see those two combined or, or compared? Well, I think that in academic circles and in activist circles, fashion is seen as something that is not cerebral. It's looked, it's looked at as something that is aesthetic and materialistic and therefore um, inherently transgressive or inherently um, uh, indicative of 
ignorance or uh, or what's what's a better word uh, vanity. Vanity. It's, yeah. And and I think that that is a dangerous a dangerous idea because it allows the fashion industry to go on unchecked. I can't tell you how many times I see people if an investigation is released, an undercover investigation about the wool industry or the leather industry or the fur industry, for example, you, you get people commenting on it like, well, if people would just stop caring about how they looked, then this problem wouldn't happen. And it's like, well, it's easy to say that. You could also say if people stopped eating food, then we wouldn't have any food problems. So it it's not, uh, that's not the issue. The issue is that we're all wearing clothing and we're all funding a specific system when we buy clothes. We are investing in the systems that we want that will flourish when we buy anything. So if we're if we're going and spending money at some big box store because the clothing is cheap, it's only cheap because someone's getting screwed over in the production. So when we buy something from a store like that, uh, we're investing in a system that exploits workers, that uses cheap toxic materials, that harms animals. And because it's this separated object that is perceived as pretty or comfortable or handsome, it is so detached from how it's made. And there's a parallel there with food, as you mentioned. You can have these food items that are yummy, that look nice that taste good, but if the process of how it was made is horrible and we're aware of it, can that, can that product still be seen as good? And um, one of my favorite philosophers, Tolstoy, said that um, his, he has a, a quote about this problem, um, what a strange illusion that it is to suppose that beauty is goodness. And it is an illusion when we have a beautiful fashion object or a delicious food item. Just because it looks good or tastes good doesn't mean that it is a good. And this is this is a problem that we deal with in a in such a, a, a society that's so disconnected from how things are made. And in in an in an atmosphere of increasing transparency and increasing demands for accountability and transparency, we're seeing what's happening. People are demanding and changing their, their preferences and their likes and dislikes based now including this idea that, hey, maybe how something is made should be part of the equation of whether I determine whether it's a beautiful object or a delicious piece of food. Um, and this is this is part of I think our social evolution as uh, in our, within the context of our civilization that the more knowledge we have that we have access to the the better decisions we can make the more educated decisions we can make and it will inevitably change our preferences. If if we just stay with the analogy to to foods and and the production, how how far along is our understanding of this fast fashion culture compared to our understanding of the food system. Because the way I see it is that it's lagging far, far behind. Like the amount of information that we have available that is out oh, there for people to see yes, yes. is way, it's, you know, just we're, magnitude smaller. Yeah, we're only just scratching the surface of the global impacts of the fashion industrial complex. And in addition to the fashion industrial complex, there's also the fashion industrial media complex. There's the marketing and selling and um, merchandising and all, that whole wing of it. And it's the propaganda around clothing. But getting back to just the production, um, there are there are some amazing journalists out there who cover this topic. There are filmmakers who've made documentaries about it, but it's not, it hasn't permeated our culture in the same way that food, the idea of where our food is coming from has. There's something about putting, putting something in our mouths and swallowing it and it becomes part of our body. I think that resonates more with people than putting something on top of our skin. 
and I don't know what that necessarily means. Um, I'd have to ask a psychologist, <laughs> but there's something about keeping clothing on the exterior. We're not ingesting clothing, keeping it on the exterior that allows it to remain on the exterior and this periphery that it's seen as secondary and importance to where food is coming from. Even though when we look at the facts, the, uh, the, the textile industry, for example, is the second leading polluter in the world. And it's responsible for impacts on millions of workers across the globe, on billions of animals. Um, going back as far as the 1500s, something as, as simple as a, fat, as a hat trend can drive a, an entire species of animal to extinction. And we've seen, especially in the early 1900s and the late 1800s, many species of animals going extinct due to fashion trends. Um, the entire idea of farming animals for materials emerged in response to these extinctions that were going on. Fox farming. Foxes weren't always farmed. They were farmed because fox in the wild were being driven to extinction. So the demands for fashion materials is so great because what those fashion materials represent is power. If you have access to a specific feather or a specific fur, there are centuries of tradition that point to the people who wear these items are powerful people. And if you can appear powerful, that's going to be something that's a pursuit that you're will that, that many people are willing to spend a lot of money and effort to to acquire. So when when people diminish the pursuit of fashion as something frivolous, they're really overlooking the more significant implications that people aren't pursuing fashion per se. They're pursuing power. Yes. And and that is that is where we need to to look and that is what we need to address. That why why is it, and you, and there is another parallel with the food industry. So there is a perception that the more cruel a production process, the more valuable and the more sought after those products will be. And we see that in food with something like foie gras or veal or ortolan. These especially cruel processes result in these products that that represent some sort of um, economic status or. Uh, an aspiration towards um, what we would consider a wealthy lifestyle or um, a higher class status. And the same thing is in, in fashion, that these materials that require very cruel processes, whether it's calfskin or fur or um, exotic leathers, it, it really, it's about, I think, it's about an ability to be perceived as ruthless. And ruthlessness is very important if you're going to be a person in power. The ability to be able to cause harm and still be able to go to sleep at night. The ability to cause mass amounts of harm, to declare war, to um, prevent immigrants from coming into a country when they're fleeing war, etc. Uh -huh. um, the ability to be ruthless is something that we are all sort of aware of that is something that leaders are able to do. Whether you're a CEO who can fire thousands of people in mass and destroy river systems and participate in causing global warming and, and still be able to go about your business, or whether you're a political leader doing similar things. And I'm not trying to say that all political leaders and all CEOs are inherently ruthless. But I think that we reward ruthless people in our culture with power. So there are all these little manifestations across whether it's food culture or fashion culture that we pursue, we pursue ruthlessness um, in a pursuit of power. We pursue being perceived as intimidating, as ruthless. And, uh, and that's something I think that's environmental and, and we're conditioned to seek out those things. So what, what kind of messages are needed to, to change the whole discourse on, on this and our whole perception of, of power and, and the ruthlessness required to, to gain that power? Um, I think that it's changing. And I think that one of the major problems is we're presented, we're being presented 
an ethical lifestyle as a step down from the rewards of a non-ethical lifestyle, a, a cruel lifestyle. That's how the conversation has been framed for a very long time, where vegans or people who are choosing to make more ethical decisions um, are seen as having sacrificed, uh, having sacrificed um, pleasure. Yeah. And the perception that this lifestyle is unpleasurable plays right into the narrative that the people in power want it to. And I think the only thing that's really combating that is is proof that this lifestyle is incredibly pleasurable. And, and that can only be done one restaurant at a time, one clothing brand at a time. And as, as more and more people see that, hey, not only is this not a lifestyle of sacrifice and misery, it's all, in fact, it's superior in many ways that you can enjoy clothing even more. You can enjoy food even more that some of these materials that I'm working with in my fashion brand, they outperform leather. They outperform uh, wool. They, they are better. They're longer lasting. They're, they feel better. And, not, and on top of it, how they're made has far less impacts on animals, on the environment, on people. Um, and it seems like it just makes sense. And people are slowly becoming aware of that. So I, I don't think it's, it's going to happen. I don't think that change is going to happen in a conversation between two people. It's going to happen sitting over a plate of really delicious food or in my store, somebody trying on a pair of vegan boots and maybe they wouldn't have otherwise sought out a pair of non-leather boots, but, and they feel it and they, and it's actually the best pair of boots they've ever had. So it, it has to happen. I think like that, where it, it's, it has to be based on experience and based on exposure to these things. And luckily, I think that there is this tipping point that we're that we're reaching. Uh, speaking of that tipping point, what's your what's your view of the big fashion brands? There are some of them seem to be slowly catching on to the consumers demanding a bit more ethical, a bit more environmentally responsible approach to to clothing. Are they? You know how the some some giants in the meat industry are now actively getting into plant-based proteins. Yeah. And do do you see the potential for big fashion brands to kind of do the same and just diversify into into more ethical sources of materials and kind of start playing into the consumer demands for for more more responsibility? I hope so. I am very skeptical of big brands who claim to be doing something ethical. And I think that while there are similarities between the food system and the fashion system, there are also very big differences. And uh, my concern is that a lot of these companies that will release a ethical capsule collection or uh, it's for marketing purposes mostly. It's not necessarily an earnest desire to change the way the business is done. Mm -hmm. Fashion, the pursuit of fast fashion, these massive volumes of clothing that get made, it can only function given a very specific set of circumstances. And those circumstances are cheap labor, mass production of materials. And the only way to make money doing that, if you're paying every worker fairly and you're using carefully made organic plant-based materials that are grown on fair labor farms and, and it, it becomes so expensive that you're talking that every fashion company would have luxury prices. There's a really big misunderstanding when people ask me, for example, why does why do your clothes cost so much? And they think that I'm somehow duping them into making a ton of money off of them. And the truth is that I'm marking my stuff up just enough where I can cover my overhead, pay my staff, and be able to make more things. I'm not getting rich. I'm not getting rich doing this. But 
in order to pay people fairly and in order to invest in high-tech, sustainable, innovative vegan materials that outperform animal materials, it's expensive. This stuff costs a lot. So you end up with a $300 pair of shoes. And yeah, somebody could go down the block and buy a pair of $20 shoes at Payless. Um, but even though they, they might have similarities in, in what they do, you, you put them on your feet, you can walk around. Um, they have starkly different production processes behind them. And that's, that's a problem. But I do think that you can see the difference in quality. And a lot of my customers have had their boots or shoes for years and they'll have the, they'll wear the sole down. They'll have the sole replaced at a cobbler because the material, the upper is so, is so good and so long lasting. Um, I still see customers who purchased shoes from very early on and I'll see them wearing them around New York city. And I'm like, I'm surprised. I'm like, wow, those still look brand new. Um, it's really exciting to get to work with these materials, but yes, there is, there is some education that needs to happen to empower people that are buying them to understand like, Hey, you are, you're not only investing in a good product that's going to last you a long time, but you're also investing in a system that should flourish in a better way of making things. And it, it, it shouldn't be inferior to your willingness to pay more for organic food or, um, or, you know, vegan, uh, better vegan proteins or anything like that. So sorry, getting back to your question, I kind of skipped over it. Um, the larger fashion brands there, they are starting to make more ethical decisions. When we look at someone like Armani, who finally declared that they're going fur free, like that's one step and that's great. And it takes a big leader like Armani going for free for other brands to feel comfortable doing it. And it's, and it's because of technology that we have, we have ways of making faux fur that are indistinguishable from the real thing. And there really is no need to be trapping or caging animals in order to get a, a, a furry, fuzzy piece of fabric. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, I'm suspicious that the fashion industry has this perception that it's very progressive and very liberal based on aesthetics alone. But when you look at it from a functioning standpoint, it's one of the most conservative and stagnant industries on the, on the planet. It, you know, it's right up there with, with the fossil fuel industry and, and on its unwillingness to really make significant changes. There's the illusion of change because there's aesthetic changes mm -hmm. that every season we're shown these different styles and trends and runway shows. And it almost can feel overwhelming. Like how can anyone keep up with this or participate in it in a meaningful way? And that's part of, that's part of the illusion to make, to make people feel as though they can't, they can't keep up with it. This is a, a relationship of a, uh, of in very small number of people dictating to the rest of us how we need to look and what we should wear and what are the colors that are popular right now what are the styles that are popular right now and that's all that's all fine but it's a distraction from the real problem what okay what are these actually being made of and how are they being made that's the important question not how short is the hemline or how how narrow cut are the pants um those are those are simply aesthetic changes and if, if we just take it in the direction that you've already started taking it and just go talk about brave gentlemen now what what are you doing specifically to to challenge that to to change that with, with your customers or your potential customers well i believe that there is importance to aesthetics. I don't want to throw aesthetics out the window. I'm not a complete utilitarian. Yes, clothing should function and it should function well, but we are animals that are drawn to aesthetics and there's an evolutionary argument for that. Um, so I lead with design. Something should feel good and look good and be a beautiful object first and foremost, and then the icing on the cake is that it's made ethically. And I think that approaching it that way removes me from the vegan bubble. 
I know that vegans who are looking for really high quality clothing will find me. So I don't necessarily need to market to them. Who I want to market to are the people who would never seek out something that's vegan. I want to reach and change the people who would buy menswear from the more mainstream brands and, and bring them over to Brave Gentleman and say, look, this is even better. You like high quality menswear? This is even better. Our materials outperform their materials. Our styles are better than their styles. So that is really, and that I think is where the, the activist in me starts, really becomes apparent that um, Brave Gentleman is a form of activism. I'm trying to reach people who, with a, with a message and with an idea who might not be already seeking it out. I'm not just trying to make money off of the existing vegan community. Was was that the the idea from from the start? Like how, what what actually what was the first piece that that you put out? Um, I did a footwear collaboration with um, a, a, a shoe line. Um, so I realized in writing the Discerning Brute that I wanted a really nice pair of simple black dress shoes. And that were that were high quality and that looked good and I knew it was possible and it was just really hard to find. Everything out there seemed kind of clunky or ugly or uh, didn't look like it was made with high quality. And I thought that that was damaging to the perception of vegans as people. That if we're gonna be if we're gonna be choosing to wear these things, do we want those things defining us? Do we want people sort of scoffing or or laughing under their breath and saying look how you know look at these vegans and look at their horrible shoes and look how how can we take them seriously and they, they don't even they don't look yeah. like we can take them seriously and that was that's a problem that you know a, a lot of people don't want to talk about because they're afraid that if we talk about the importance of aesthetics that again going back to this idea we're indulging in vanity and vanity is inherently um, anti, anti-intelligent and anti-cerebral and anti-academic. So, um, anyway, I'm going out on a limb and I'm, and I'm saying, Hey, this is important. How we're, how we are visually perceived is important. And there are, there's a lot of research to back up that if you perceive, if you present yourself aesthetically in a very specific way in different situations, you're likely given much more clout. If you show up in a business suit to an interview, you're going to be taken more seriously than if you show up in a pair of sweatpants and a t-shirt. We all kind of know this in the back of our mind, but we're unwilling, uh, many of us, especially in the activist and the vegan community, we're unwilling to make that jump over to the perception of our cause and the perception of our movement from aesthetic terms. Um, sorry, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> uh, the question was about your first, first products. You, you were oh, talking right. about the shoe line and collaborating oh. with with someone, right? So um, I wanted to make a pair of really great shoes, and I reached out to Novakas, which was an existing shoe brand, mm -hmm. and they're based in New York, and I, they're friends of mine. And I said, "Hey, I wanna I wanna make a really expensive, like high end, well made men's shoe, and I want it to be perceived as such." And let's collaborate. Let's do something. And they agreed. And we released a very small collection of shoes. And it went really well. We sold out. And then we did, a neck, uh, we did the next season. And we introduced more styles. And then that sold out. And I mean, at first, we were starting with very small production runs. Um, and to this day, that, that relationship is ongoing. My, my entire footwear collection is a collaboration with Novakas, where... I design the shoes. I just I pick out the materials, and we and I work with them. They manage. They work with the factory in Europe, and they do the, you know the quality control and all of that. And the collaboration has been really fruitful and really exciting to see it evolve. And then because of because we had this shoe line, sorry, because we had this footwear line, I was able to then say, okay, what else should we do? Let's do belts. Let's do wallets. Um, and then. In the back of my mind, I always wanted to do a really well-made vegan suit because I knew that in the world of menswear, there's so much emphasis 
placed around wool and cashmere and leather. These materials really define mainstream menswear. And it's just because of marketing. We're told that these materials define quality. When you when you hear marketing coming out of the leather industry, they've put a lot of money and effort into owning words like uh, authentic and real and genuine. And, and that really doesn't mean anything. If somebody looks at the back of a belt and it says 100% genuine leather, they've been, they've been conditioned to interpret that as this is high quality. Yeah. This means that this is good. But there are materials that are better. And it's just a matter of marketing and reaching people and getting them to understand that. So I wanted to make a, a vegan suit. And that took a lot of time and research and really understanding how a suit is made. And that was a huge learning curve for me. And I made a lot of expensive mistakes. Uh, at first, I was working with a factory in Italy, and I was I had to supply them with everything down to thread, the exterior material, the lining, the interlining, the, um, the shoulder pads, the buttons, the thread. The, it's just crazy. You don't think about how many ingredients go into an article of clothing, especially something like a men's suit. There's so many parts. And often the factory supplies a lot of those parts and the design, the company will just show up with their exterior shell fabric that they want to work with and the factory will supply the rest. The problem is that a lot of those materials that the factory will supply are wool or silk and I, because I'm unwilling to work with those materials, um, I posed a problem to a lot of the factories that I would want to work with where they said, this isn't worth it. You're disrupting our production process too much and we can't work with you. So it, it took a long time to find, finally find a factory here in New York City that was willing to work with all the different materials that I was replacing and still make high quality suits that were relatively affordable in comparison to other high quality suits. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's an, <clears throat> the entire brand is an ongoing experiment and learning process. I'm always learning new things. I'm always improving. I'm always trying to make things better and more efficient and more high performance. And I'm always trying to bring in new materials that are on the cutting edge when things first become available that I think would be appropriate to use. I would love to be able to use more of them. Um, like what? But, like, well, I, I'd really like to know what, what kind of materials you're using right now and what, what are you excited about for, for future products? Well, the, the thing that I'm most excited about right now that we have in production is our uh, future wool which is made from recycled cotton and recycled polyester that's diverted from the waste stream in Brazil. There's a mill that I'm working with in Brazil, and they, as, we, as I discussed earlier, textile waste is a huge problem. It's, it's, one of the top, uh, it's one of the top contributors to pollution in the world. And um, they figured out how to tap into the waste stream that as things move towards landfill, they can pull from it. And what they've done is they've started pulling all the cotton and all the polyester out of the waste stream, whether it's t-shirts or bedding or you name it, other pieces of clothing. And then they color separate it. So it's a dye-free process. So the things already come with the existing dye that they have. And then they grind it back down into fiber and spin new threads with it. So you end up with these really beautiful tweeds and twills that are wooly and they have a wooly hand feel and uh, and I'm making really nice uh, blazers and overcoats and pants and it just looks like a nice wool tweed. Nobody would know. But there's this great story behind it, how it's made and how it's not only not harming sheep, but it's having a positive impact on waste. What's... Since since you mentioned that you did some expensive mistakes, do do you mind if we talk numbers now and just how how expensive is this future wool compared to to sheep wool? It's comparable. It's comparable. It's, uh, it's comparably priced. I think that um, the materials that I use are generally more expensive than conventional materials. I'd say. I mean, people. Especially, it's also a problem of volume and scale that I'm producing at small scale. And so 
when I buy a roll of fabric, I'm spending more per yard than people who are buying a thousand rolls of fabric at mm -hmm. a time. There's discounts and incentives placed on scaling up. So doing small scale and spending money on, on innovative materials, um, it ends up being more expensive. But with this particular material, it's not that much more expensive than a fine wool. So as same thing with, with, the, um, with the leather that we're using, the vegan leather. Um, it's a little bit more expensive than some of the fine leathers that people would buy from Italy or whatever. Um, so it, it, it does force me into that higher tier of the market. But that's fine because that's kind of where I want to be. I want to appeal to those people and I want to, there's more to a fashion brand than actually buying the products. Yeah. If you can ask, well, for example, um, Louis Vuitton or Chanel, those are household names in most of the Western world. People know and recognize those names and what they represent, even though most people don't actually buy the product. So there is something that's very permeating about a fashion brand and what it represents beyond just actually acquiring the object. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I aspire for Brave Gentleman to also represent a very specific lifestyle and a very specific form of identity um, beyond just buying the products. Yes, I want people to buy the products. That's how we, that's how we function and that's how we grow. But it sh uh, what it represents should reach beyond that. How, how did you grow? Speaking of that, like after the shoes, because right now you, you actually have a physical store in, in New York, right? Yes. How long did it take you to, to build that up? Well, I've been in business since 2010. So it's, it's now uh, going on seven years. And it's only just now that I'm finally able to open up permanent brick and mortar. And I've grown slowly, but I'm glad I grew slowly because I had a lot of learning to do along the way. I, um, if I had opened a store right away, I think it would have failed. And I'm glad that I had the opportunity to struggle for a long time. And I had to prove viability of the company. I had to prove that this was something that was not only six, uh, potentially successful and could be something that lasted in the long run, but I also had to show that it was profitable and that I knew as, and that I was committed as, um, as a founder and as the president of the company. So, um, it wasn't until recently that I became appealing to investors either. So for, for the first several years of my company, I relied upon working a day job. I had a separate job. So it, it was all self-funded basically. From the beginning, it was self-funded. I bootstrapped it. I, I, I tried to take out a loan from a bank and they wouldn't do it. So I had to, <laughs> I had to ask someone who could take out a loan to do it for me. And then I paid them. Um, and it was a very, very small business loan. We're talking like, you know, like under $20,000. So I really, it was tough at first. I was working a day job. I was trying to make the most out of this, you know, this, these small loans that I could get my hands on here and there. And, um, and then it wasn't until years later that I proved that we were growing and that we were profiting and that as we expanded our inventory and volume, so did sales. Sales grew also. And then we became interesting to uh, more serious investors. And so that's sort of the stage that I'm at right now is we are um, working with and uh, working with and discussing um, potential uh, collaborations with uh, investors who want to be part of Brave Gentlemen, who want equity, who believe in the brand, who have something that they can bring to the table that that maybe I don't have experience in. Um, I'm looking for more partnerships. I'm looking for people to be come part of the brand who um, who have something significant that that could put Brave Gentleman, you know, up to that next level. I want Brave Gentleman to be a global brand. I want to um, 
I want to be producing at a much larger scale. And I think that I can't do that on my own. So mm-hmm. I, I'm very reliant upon, um, the, the prospect of working with, uh, people who can do that. But I guess the important thing here is that it was at the beginning, it was you putting in your hard work to actually yes. get to this point where, oh. where you're now actually interested, interesting to, to investors. That's a really important lesson. I There were so many times where I was convinced I was going to quit, where I said, okay, I can't do this anymore. It's I'm, I'm on the verge of being broke, and I can't continue making this company work while working a day job, and who knows if this is even going to pan out in the end, like I'm done. And... There were there are a lot of scary moments like that, and I think that that is shared among a lot of entrepreneurs. Where there's always that that opportunity to quit, and there's always reason to quit, but you don't, and you push forward, and you go ahead, and then you get through it, and then you come out even stronger and even better. And I think that that is that is the difference um, between somebody who <laughs> who is inherently an entrepreneur who's willing to kind of be a little bit crazy and take those big risks because there is no guarantee that it'll work out. Yeah. It might fail. And then, and looking at statistics, a lot of, a lot of, and most startups do fail. Um, but we're not, we're not failing. And we, and, and that's been really exciting to see is we we're we're one of the lucky ones. And, um, and I don't think it's just luck. It's also, really understanding I, what I don't think doing. it's ever really just luck that's that gets you through that you know? no I mean I think you could probably find one or two cases of of people who just fell into something very lucky but for the I'd say 99% of the cases no it's it's about research and hard work and consistency 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 never never backing down from um, making sure your message is consistent and your products are consistently good and um, that th- there is, uh, it, it's a practically a 24 hour, seven day a week job since when you start. And it's, <laughs> you, you think about, you know, the reason why I wanted to be an entrepreneur is because I didn't, I didn't like working a nine to five corporate, you know, job for someone else. And, here I, I left I left this thing to do something else that takes far more time, but I'm so much happier. Yeah. So now I mean, speaking of challenges and overcoming them, what is it about you specifically that drives you forward to to help you overcome those challenges? I think if I was just making fashion for the sake of fashion. I would have, I would have, I probably would never have even gotten into fashion. But let's say I had, um, I would, I probably would have left it years ago. I would have said, oh, you know, this isn't, this isn't immediately making me uh, a living, and this is too difficult, and why do it? But one of the motivating factors for me is knowing that this is activism. I'm doing this to help animals and to help the environment and to help workers. And that is so necessary and so motivating that I couldn't give up. There's too much at stake. And I think when there are high stakes and there's something beyond just making a product, this is such a driving force that you don't see failure. You don't see failure as an option. I can't lose this fight is sort of the internal dialogue that making this company work is not, it's not an option. It's going to happen. And I'm going to figure it out one way or the other. And if that means um, adapting to do something else or, or improving product or maybe scaling back slightly for one season and then, and then, you know, figuring things out and going back even stronger the next season, there's options. You, you don't always have to have to quit. Um, so yeah, I don't. I just don't see quitting as an option. Uh, I think that's a pretty good attitude to have. Right? <laughs> now if we're just gonna start wrapping this up, and 
based on what drives you, what will be one piece of advice that you would give anyone who wants to get into the same line of work that you do? So vegan, sustainable fashion. Oh, man. I think if you want to get into fashion just because you like fashion and you think fashion's cool, I would say don't do it. It is not a glamorous lifestyle. It is not it is not what it appears to be from the outside looking in. It's not all red carpets and parties and runway shows. It is it is 24 hours a day <laughs> responding to millions of emails and, you know, being it, it I would say if you want to go into ethical fashion, go into it because you want to change the world, not because you want to make cool clothes. Good. Good. Making cool Good. clothes is a part of pursuing changing the world, I think. But that can't be the only reason to just make cool clothes. No, not just for the sake of making cool clothes. <laughs> yeah. You will quickly learn that it is not it is not quote unquote fun. Um, it is very, very demanding. Now, based on your experience over these past seven years, where do you see that the best opportunities for growth are in the fashion industry, in the plant-based fashion industry? Like, what's what has the best and, and the most untapped potential? What innovations are happening right no, now? Not just innovations, but... You know, you you are making quote unquote high fashion, like right. fine fine menswear. Like what else? What what other subsectors of the fashion of the vegan fashion industry are just completely underexplored right now? Hmm, that's a good question. I think if I became aware of it, I would probably try to do it. So, <laughs> um, there's, I think, I think actually athletic wear and sports accessories, and that's something we're moving into. I, um, I started doing CrossFit grips um, because I'm a CrossFitter. So I, uh, mostly they're made with leather. And the reason they're made with leather is because it's perceived to be this high-performance, durable material that can withstand heavy lifting and pull-ups and, you know, a year of um, use and abuse. And I, I started designing these alternative uh, lifting grips that have stood the test of time. I've been using it for over a year now, and I, I use it fairly frequently. And now, now that I've proved that this material is just as good, if not better, than leather, I want to go into other categories. I'd love to do lifting belts, um, boxing gloves, uh, punching bags, um, pads, and uh, you know, for for fighting. Um, there, there's a huge market in that world. I think that is kind of dedicated to leather, and I would love for for Brave Gentleman to have sort of a a sports sportswear uh, and performance wear division. But um, if somebody else wants to. To try to get to that first. See, that's can... that's one thing that I also had in mind when when I was just thinking of this question was yeah, sportswear, activewear, and I have to say I just skinned my hands this morning doing rope climbs. So uh, yeah, something uh, something vegan to to wear to CrossFit would definitely help. I have help. a solution for you. They're right here. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, they're not in here. Oh yeah, here. Yes. So these are the these are the gloves. These were these were our first prototypes. So they're a wrist wrap. See, that's exactly what I needed. They're a wrist wrap and a full full palm protection. And it, that that's made from vegan leather. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Well, it's a it's made from a high tech Italian made microfiber that. Um, you know the term vegan leather is an umbrella term, oh, yeah. So it can it can do a lot. Um, yeah, vegan leather is an umbrella term, and it can describe many different materials, and they're not all the same, and they're not all equal. And some are toxic and terrible, and some are benign and and perform wonderfully. So it really, there's a lot of educating that needs to be done. Cool. Now, just two more questions, and we're done. Yep. First of all, if we talk best case scenarios, what kind of future are you helping build? I think in the best case scenario, 
we are on the brink of some of the most exciting material innovations, and some of them are already on the market. And one sector that I'm fascinated by and that I really want to be part of is the um, the sector that's doing uh, what people are calling cellular agriculture or biofabrication. Um, there's already biofabricated spider silk on the market. And what basically that means is scientists looked at spider silk and they looked at it from a chemical and biological standpoint. And they said, how, what is this made of and how is it made? And they figured out how to replicate that in the laboratory without any spiders involved. So they can now make at scale this, um, they can now make at scale this material that is one of the strongest materials in nature. Um, and they can produce it much more affordably and without having to have any living being involved in the process. And so soon there's also companies working on lab grown leather and it's the same principle. You're taking a cell and you're farming it. You're growing that cell and it's a skin cell. So you can make leather without an animal that has to be raised or, or harmed or slaughtered in any way. It's just, you're just growing the skin itself. And there's also similar developments happening in, in all of the areas of animal material. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that soon there will be absolutely no reason to be raising, farming, processing, killing, um, trapping, caging any animal in order to get its feather or its skin or its pelt. And, um, I would love for Brave Gentleman to have access to some of those materials when they become available. Uh, I don't think, I think for some, for some vegans, it's a gray area, but I don't see it as a gray area at all. I think that if we can help prevent billions of animals from being killed for their materials, for their skins, for their, um, for their hairs, and we can just, grow those materials directly without having involving them at all. That's an obvious solution. Yeah. Awesome. Now, because I know that listeners are probably wondering what's the best way to follow you, connect with you, and of course, find out more about brave gentleman products. Yes. Uh, I am on Instagram. You can follow me at the discerning brute. Or you can follow me at brave underscore gentleman. I'm also on Twitter, similar handles, and I'm on Facebook. You can go to my website, thediscerningbrute.com or bravegentleman.com. And you can also um, say hi to me on social media. I usually respond. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's it. That's it. And of course, you have an online store and a physical store in New York. So yeah, if anyone uh, wants to drop in. Yeah, please come visit me at the store. We are, we're open in Brooklyn, New York at 367 Graham Avenue, which is right off of the L train uh, at the Graham Avenue stop. And if you come to the Graham Avenue stop of the L train, it's not just Brave Gentleman that you'll be excited about. There's a ton of vegan businesses right here in this area. Everything from Dunwell Donuts to Champ's Diner to Modern Love to there's two vegan tattoo shops, uh, Gristle's one of them. Um, there's a vegan pizzeria called Screamers. Um, I'm probably forgetting some, but there's a, this is a little oh there, there's a vegan market called Haymakers and a vegan bar called Pine Box Rock Shop. This is a real destination for vegan tourists, so please do come by. Nice, nice. I'll, I'll make it a point to visit that when I'm next <laughs> in New York. <laughs> awesome. Joshua, it's been great talking to you. Thank great you for sharing you. all of that. And, Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait to see more about those um, CrossFit products that you're working on. Thank you. I'm excited also. And thank you for having me. And um, yeah, thanks for doing awesome work. Go. Thanks. Bye-bye. All the best. Right. So that was Professor Joshua Catcher from Brave Gentleman. If you haven't had time to write down the address to his shop, don't worry, because all the details and all the links to the things that we talked about today are in the show notes. If you just go to theplantbasedentrepreneur.com 
slash show slash episode 020. For everything else, if you have any suggestions or questions about the show, you can connect with me on Instagram at jerry underscore saver or drop me an email on jerry at theplanbasedentrepreneur.com. I personally check all my messages there and I'd love to hear from you. And yeah, if you're tuning into the show on iTunes, I'd also love for you to leave us a review there and help us reach even more people. Now, that is all for today. I will talk to you again very soon. Until then, stay amazing and keep creating that plan-based future.